1: Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the presidential race in my members-only Inner Circle Club. You'll receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here is a special offer for my podcast listeners. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast And if you sign up for a one or two year membership, you'll get 10% off your membership price and a VIP fast pass to my live events. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. Use the code podcast at checkout. Sign up today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast and use the code podcast. Hurry, this offer expires February 14th. In this episode of Newt's World, Calista and I recently visited South Korea on a really rapid trip which included visiting the capital of Seoul, going up to the demilitarized zone and visiting the 5G developments at Samsung. It was just a remarkable reminder of what a miracle modern South Korea has become. I felt that in part because my dad served there in 1953 during the war uh, and then went back later and served in the late 60s. And to see the poverty, the pain, the destruction of the South Korea he served in in 1953, and this gigantic city of 10 million, the fourth largest metropolitan area in the world. Seoul today is like a modern miracle, partly a testimony to the South Korean people, partly a testimony to the patience and commitment of the United States. And the Seoul metropolitan area has over 25 million people, about half the population of South Korea. It's fascinating, and I thought worth talking about the Korean peninsula, the whole peninsula, because of some of the contrast between North and South. We're very fortunate to have Dr. Stephen Norper, who's with us today, and who's a real expert on this topic, and is going to help us have a much better sense of understanding. Before we get into Korea, Steve, would you sort of give us a little bit of an introduction? How did you get so interested in Korea? Well, like you,
0: I was fascinated with the period after the Korean War. I grew up in a family with five adopted siblings from Korea, uh, so the memory of the war had some perpetuation through the establishment of the adoption network and a lot of uh, young Korean Americans who made their their way here, identified uh, with a lot of the cultural issues, but actually worked a lot on uh, issues of human rights and political repression. And now I'm at the Korea Society, that's an American NGO based out of New York. So it's uh, been an interesting. Uh, uh, journey, and I've now spent over three decades uh, dealing with Korea on a daily basis, uh, and it's been fascinating.
1: You know, I guess because I'm a historian both by training and by the way my mind works. I, I was very struck. Uh, Clistically, I were in Korea five or six years ago, and we went to their war museum, which is really quite remarkable. But the centerpiece of their war museum is not the Korean War that we would relate to, but rather a medieval warship which protected Korea in the middle ages because Korea was consistently threatened both by the Japanese and by the Chinese. And so if you don't mind take us back for a couple of minutes into the deeper roots of the Korean experience and what it what is Koreanness and how how did they emerge surrounded by these two bigger countries? And struggling for a unique identity. Right. It's a
0: great question, because the country came out of a period where there was a, a, a three kingdoms period where you had a lot of division and then entered into the single longest dynastic Uh, reality in all of East Asia. They had 13 centuries of uh, essentially being a single dynasty. And as they did that, uh, they did encounter the challenges of their neighbors. Uh, It earned it the title Hermit Kingdom in that it appeared to be isolated, but it opened up to the West uh, in the 1880s.
1: Historically, people who were Korean, as I understand it, took great pride in being Korean, And would all basically have identified as a single unified culture in contrast to the Russians to the north or the Siberians, actually, before the Russians, and then the Chinese to their west and the uh, Japanese to the east. Is that a reasonable way of describing them?
0: certainly the Korean Peninsula has uh, become the destiny for its people because the mountains uh, meant a more rigorous reality. It's reflected in, in the durability of, of the people in terms of the uh, spicy cuisine and in terms of the national character. It has had an amazing amount of resilience. It has had to learn to both repel and adapt to the realities of China to the west and Japan to the east, Russia to the north, and in the modern context, dealing with the Americans and other international interests. So, that political reality has also made it extremely adept in terms of what happened after the Korean War, in terms of the stand up in two generations. It's largely a nation defined by, by the Minjuk, by the ethnicity of the Korean people. So, national identity is incredibly important. And as it's become more politically and economically viable, that means that that sense of identity has, has grown with it. And there's a strong sense of pride which you've detected in your visits.
1: Starting in the late 1880s, the United States uh, began to open them up uh, from the sea. Uh, and in particular, our interests were missionary activities. This was the the great wave of American missionaries going to China as well as Korea. I was very struck when Calista became the ambassador to the Vatican. The very first event we went to was a Korean-sponsored series of pictures and uh, paintings and things about uh, Christianity in Korea, the degree of difficulty it faced, uh, and in particular in the North, the degree to which, if it still exists, it exists in the mountains with people who are literally prepared to uh, virtually starve for their religious beliefs. In the South, of course, it became a much bigger part. I think about 5% of Korea is now Christian And it seems to be a fairly significant piece of the leadership of the country.
0: It is. And it's been fascinating because Christianity has taken hold in Korea in a way that it clearly hasn't in China or Japan. And... While in the late 1800s, that missionary activity first met resistance, and there were many missionaries killed in the, the process of, of educating and evangelizing, it left a lasting impact in a very positive way in terms of the structure of the educational system. Uh, a lot of schools opened in terms of health care, uh, hospitals, and so Koreans, who at that time were poor and were suffering under Japanese subjugation uh, once the early 20th century came around. It provided an outlet for them, and it provided education, medical care, uh, and support. And uh, as Korea then became liberated after 1945, South Korea became very active. Really, when you land in Seoul, you see, especially at night, lit crosses. It's a city of crosses. And it's interesting that you mentioned North Korea because people may not realize, but at the turn of the 20th century, Pyongyang was regarded as the Jerusalem of the East. That was the term widely used.
1: Well, the U.S. had a great deal of missionary activity in Korea that was voluntary. In the end, Korea was not central to the U.S. Uh, and in particular, the United States decided that it had other things that were far more important. And and as seen by the Koreans it betrayed them. And could you comment for a second on the impact of the Taft-Katsura Treaty and the whole feeling it created in Korea? The
0: 1905 Taft test- katsura agreement essentially was an understanding between the secretary of war william howard taft and the japanese prime minister uh, katsura uh, where the Philippines and the control of it was basically traded off to the Americans in exchange for control of Korean Peninsula to Japan. Again, not a formal agreement, but uh, implicitly and in a discussion of broader policy. The uh, Russo-Japanese War had just ended. Uh, Japan was in a position of strength. Ten years earlier, it had defeated China in the Sino-Japanese War. So uh, it then began to expand. It was colonial Japan at that point, and it took Korea in 1905 and formally annexed it in 1910 and that then began Uh, an almost four-decade legacy of oppressive colonial occupation, which robbed Koreans of their identity. They lost their names. They had to take Japanese names. They uh, lost their standing. They were forced, uh, many, to uh, exile, to labor in Japan uh, or in very poor conditions in Korea. There were gross human rights abuses. And so this period between the formal annexation in 1910 and uh, liberation after the defeat of Japan in 1945 was one uh, that is remembered by Koreans as a period of uh, tremendous brutality of uh, a national disgrace and embarrassment of a foreign occupation.
1: Then all of a sudden, this remarkably independent country that had been balancing for well over a thousand years between China and Japan is suddenly overwhelmed by the rise of the modern industrialized Japanese in 1905. And they really run the country with a ruthlessness that is sort of a a foreshadowing of how they will behave in World War II. Can you talk a little bit about the degree to which the Japanese ran the country, the way they did it, and the kind of memories that that has left?
0: Between 1910 and 1945, Korea was formally annexed as a territory of Japan, and so it was administered by Japan. There was a a prefectural government. uh, There were local Japanese administrators. It was run as something of a military-type regime, uh, and the population worked to the benefit of Japan. Most of the economic goods were shipped to Japan. Labor was shipped uh, to Japan, and, and many Koreans, in the course of losing their identities, then became conscripted laborers in Japan and it was a, a poor period for the Koreans it was also the birth of their independence period because in 1919 they stood up a, a large opposition among the students and in intelligentsia and labor forces against Japan and it's one that uh, really was very long tragic uh, and cruel in its disposition and it didn't uh, alleviate itself until 1945 we've just marked the hundredth anniversary of the 1919 movement which was a popular uprising. It was the uh, singular period when the uh, intelligentsia students uh, and labor gathered. It was resistance against the Japanese, and it was in that year, too, that there uh, was the evolution of a uh, uh government in exile and that was uh, largely won in China, but it was a time of great national suffering and it was a time of the loss of identity and Korea was, was largely seen as a backwater. It was a poor area, it wasn't seen as strategically vital uh, and the Philippines on the other hand provided uh, you know a more obvious trade entree into Southeast Asia and it appeared to have more on offer uh, for US economic interests.
1: I think it's important to remember that the world war was enormous and that the United States was faced with, they thought, the prospect of invading Japan, which they thought would probably kill a million Americans and seven or eight million Japanese. And at that point, Stalin offered, having defeated the Germans, that a substantial part of the Soviet army would liberate part of China and part of Korea. And it was in that context of trying to find a balance of power, really with the Soviet Union, that we ended up deciding that there'd be two Koreas. It raises really interesting questions about whether, for example, if we had said we don't care, you'd have had a totally communist Korea, and that would have been a different world. Or if we had said to the Soviets, we're not going to tolerate you south of the Yalu, that would have led to a different world. But at the time, I think our basic attitude was, look, we've, had, we've been fighting a big war. We just want to get it over with. The troops want to go home. Uh, let's find some common sense agreement. And you probably had almost nobody who knew anything about Korean history or Korean culture involved in the decision making. And so that was the simplest way to decide it. And at the time, it actually left the North with most of the industry and most of the population and most of the wealth. I mean, people tend to forget now because the situation is so radically different. But it was not clear at all in 1945 uh, that the South could survive economically. Certainly not clear that it would become a democracy in any foreseeable future. Does that strike you as about right?
0: That's exactly right. And you know, that led to the ambivalence of the Truman administration in terms of how to deal with entry into the Korean War. At the time, the American population thought of Korea as the third conflict after World War I, after World War II. And there were a lot of questions about the willingness to engage in what was seen as a rather far off place, especially after the difficulties of having dealt with the nightmare of Imperial Japan and having ended that with uh, the bombings at at Hiroshima and Nagasaki and uh, really a lack of of national will to be involved yet again in another conflict uh, as soon as 1950.
1: I think the shock of the North Koreans coming across the border on June 25, 1950 and the quality of the North Korean army which had been developed. Kim Il-sung had been picked by Stalin. He was a... um, anti-Japanese guerrilla fighter who had worked very very hard to be acceptable as a Stalinist and so he became the head of North Korea. He was vaguely associated with the communists in China but the communists in China were seen as not totally regular communists. Stalin had some mild interest in North Korea and Kim Il sung sold everybody in a campaign in the winter of 1949, early 1950, literally a campaign to go out and convince both Stalin and Mao Zedong that uh, North Korea could unify the country, that the Americans clearly would not intervene, and that it would uh, consolidate communism on the Asian continent. He had a commitment of some support from Stalin, although it was always dubious because Stalin was very hard to pin down. And he had a commitment which Stalin had leaned on Mao to get of some uh, possible support from Mao, although the primary reason the Chinese would come into the war was that they were not going to tolerate the Americans being that close to the mainland. Well,
0: no, you're right. And that's a fundamentally important period, because what happened in March of 1949 was Kim Il-sung went to Moscow and tried to appeal to Stalin and say, look, I'd like your support to unify the Korean Peninsula. And and Stalin really didn't have interest. It was only a a year and a month later, in April of 1950, that Stalin signaled that this was permissible. And there were were really uh, a couple of factors that played into mind. One was uh, that the... Chinese uh, Civil War had essentially ended with the PRC in control. And so, with mainland China more unified, uh, Stalin saw an opportunity to also peg Russian interests. Uh, secondly, the Soviets had developed their own atomic capability. And so with the Soviet bomb, it felt bullish and it felt uh, that it could be more expansionary. And that then created the concern in the United States about the domino effect and trying to curtail the forward role of communism. All those factors come into play that, that in a very unhealthy way then lead to Kim Il-sung feeling empowered in June of 1950 to roll forward over the 38th parallel after uh, some skirmishes uh, by both north and south. There was a Russian protectorate that grew up north of the 38th parallel and an American protectorate that grew up south of the 38th parallel. How did they arrive at that? Two colonels in Washington, D.C., they essentially threw a dart at the board, and that, that was what stuck. And that's how the Koreans, certainly those of a more nationalistic orientation, see it uh, when they are concerned about the division of the peninsula. But let's remember, the division of the Korean peninsula may well have been a result of, of U.S. And, and Soviet determination. And that became what is essentially the area that after the Korean War in 1953 was marked off as the demilitarized zone.
1: When we come back...
0: It's one of the more definitive and fascinating areas of U.S. military history.
1: The Korean War itself is an amazing period because... We clearly were unprepared. Uh, We had too small a unit in Japan. They were too badly trained. They were under equipped. We'd really relaxed dramatically from 1945 after winning World War II. And yet we were able, between June 25th and early September, to stop the North Koreans around the Pusan perimeter, organize an amphibious landing, and land at Incheon behind. Uh, the North Koreans cutting off their logistics and collapsing their army. And what's what's one of the most classic campaigns in history matched then by the hubris of Douglas MacArthur who had launched the campaign brilliantly and then sort of became blinded by his own success and refused to believe that the Chinese communists would come in and uh, set up a stunning moment of total strategic surprise in November of 1950 that led to a, one of the largest American defeats in history. It's, to me, it's an amazing, the whole that whole process in 1950 is just astonishing.
0: You're absolutely right, Newt. It's one of the more definitive and fascinating areas of U.S. military history. Clearly, the fact that they were able to push back from the from the parameter uh, really showed an incredible amount of resolve. The fact that Incheon took place uh, 100 miles north of North Korean lines was a remarkable accomplishment and what they achieved and the roll-up to the yellow. But MacArthur wanted to keep Forces uh, that far north, but uh, clearly the rollback by the Truman administration uh, toward the 38th parallel then meant that all of that activity that you saw there in the first year led to a following two years of relative stalemate, and then eventually the armistice in 1953. But you note the what happened in December of 1950, the uh, first. You have mass evacuation under the auspices of the United Nations, the U.S. led, uh, from Hungnam. And the current president, uh, Moon Jae-in's parents were part of the Hungnam evacuation. Stunning. Now, a million Koreans today owe their lineage to those who were evacuated from Hungnam. Over, uh, 112,000 people. Just a remarkable effort and feats of tremendous bravery on, on, Small vessels that made their way out, including a ship of miracles that that, uh, saw a resolute Korean stand for for three or four days uh, before they they reached their destination. That saw multiple bursts on board and an amazing degree of uh, stability, pride and and stoicism and tremendous heroics by United States forces as they had to evacuate out of the Chosin Reservoir and as they made their way to Hongnam and then south uh, and tremendous loss of American life to protect those refugees, uh, many of whom have gone on to to help build modern Korea as it is today.
1: Do you have any idea what, what share of the North Korean population voluntarily went south?
0: A lot of North Koreans did go south, uh, and that's why two-thirds of the peninsula, in terms of population, are in the south and only a third in the north.
1: And so when the war gradually grinds to a halt, partially because... We prove we're determined enough to stop the Chinese, and the Chinese feel like they've sort of made their point that they won't let us go north. And Eisenhower, in all probability, communicated through the Indians that if he had to, he would go to nuclear weapons. At that point, there is an armistice, which when we were visiting recently, it's amazing to realize, technically... There's still an armistice. I mean, technically, they're still at war, and that the armistice has been holding now for 63 years, which strikes me as sort of an astonishing comment on the world that you could have this not war, not peace relationship.
0: Right, the stalemate, and it's, it's one where the armistice, you know, really was by design only meant to last for a very short time. Weeks or a few months. Uh, but as you mentioned, it, it has stretched itself out now towards seven decades and has, left a, a relatively stable situation. I mean, say for, for some flare-ups along the demilitarized zone and, and among uh, along the northern limit line out in the, the West Sea over time, but uh, it has been a relatively stable fixture. The United States is a signatory, as is North Korea. Uh, China managed to skirt. Mao was clever in terms of having it signed only by Chinese Voluntary Army, which gives them some of an out, but in the eventual resolution, clearly China will probably have to to step up with any peace uh, mechanism that's put in place. But South Korea interestingly chose not to sign it because uh Sigmund Rhee, the president, was vociferous in his opposition to not uniting the Korean Peninsula, and uh, so South Korea technically is not a signatory. But what Moon Jae-in, the president, now would like to do is very much have North, South, the United States, and China in some place highly symbolic to sign something of an end of war statement, and beyond that, a, a, a peace treaty that replaces the armistice.
1: Tell me about how the Kims came to power
0: there was a civil conflict taking place on the peninsula. And so the Kim family emerged first with, with Kim Il-sung who became the leader with the imposition uh, and support uh, by Stalin. And, uh, Kim Il-sung had been a colonial fighter, and he used that legitimacy in the fight against the Japanese to rally support uh, in his contest for leadership. And then uh, really you have the growth of the cult of the Kim family. It was Kim Il-sung who then uh, maintained control uh, until his death in 1994. And then that continues through his son after 1994 when Kim Jong-il enters onto the scene more fully. He had been groomed for a long period to succeed his father. And you have not only a communist succession, as it were, but, but really more a Confucian dynastic succession, uh, and then that continues through, through his excesses, and, and you may recall that, that Kim Jong-il was guilty of terrorist incidents and, again, gross human rights abuses and mounting a, a very serious security challenge as he, he had his military first agenda. And then now, uh, since his passing in 2011, the assumption of power by Kim Jong-un, who has emerged on the one hand as more of a seemingly globally inclined leader. He seems to like the stage more than his father, although that is more a phenomenon of, of the last year or two. But the repression has not subsided, and the gulag still exists with as many as 120,000 North Koreans in uh, detention camps with a very serious security challenge, which has been a preeminent uh, concern. It was the one passed from the Obama to Trump administrations in a December 2016 classified briefing and has been defined by the Trump administration as the dominant national security concern, and that is the missile and nuclear improvements, enhancements by North Korea and now a very lethal range in its weaponry and capabilities with uh, the ability to strike the entire continental US uh, through the development of ICBMs and uh, with a very strong nuclear capability. The sixth uh, test which was concluded in September two years ago had a yield of 270 kilotons or about 17 times the size of uh, Hiroshima. So uh, tremendous lethality and that is what the United States and international community are bent on doing now is to curb North Korean developments on the nuclear and missile front. And there's a long list of other concerns to include human rights. When we come back, the model of Korea as a harbinger for democracy in a time of rising autocracy, Korea is really essentially important.
1: have two radically different systems. You have one which is a totalitarian dictatorship deliberately isolated from the world and representing a level of poverty that's unbelievable. And you have one which is a democracy with a very vibrant civil society and engaged worldwide in commercial development. And you can, the easiest way to summarize it is to look at a map at night where you can see where the boundary is because south of the boundary, there's all sorts of electric lights of a prosperous, uh, free South Korea. And north of the boundary, there are almost no electric lights because they're so poverty-stricken in the dictatorship. There are very few places on the planet where you have a stark and clear a distinction between North and South Korea. And what makes it really dangerous is that the North does have nuclear weapons. And even before it had nuclear weapons, it has probably 250,000 artillery pieces and missiles that are within reach of Seoul. Seoul is the fourth largest urban area in the world and very, very vulnerable to a North Korean first strike even with conventional weapons. So you have a balance of prosperity versus tyranny That always makes it dangerous, although so far the North Korean dictatorship's desire to survive has kept it relatively stable and relatively risk-avoiding, I think, would be my guess. But what would you say, Stephen?
0: That's exactly right, and that's a brilliant summary. The South Koreans really present us with so many testimonials and opportunities, Uh, one to the strength of the U.S.-Korea alliance and what that has meant in terms of U.S. alliance relationships with not only the security relationship but with uh, heavy AID investment uh, and with business investment over time. Korea mobilizing itself through the strength of its people over two generations to really the economic powerhouse it is now to now be the 10th largest global economy uh, with brands like Samsung Hyundai and LG, uh, winning uh, through its soft power, uh, Hearts and Minds globally, clearly the strength of Korean film, K-pop, and and other things that have appeal. And then very importantly uh, to myself as a political scientist, the uh, model of Korea as a a harbinger for democracy in a time of rising autocracy and uh, rollbacks to democracy. And so Korea is really essentially important. It is modeled for other places like uh, Mongolia in terms Of its democratic transition, and it's an important uh, place in in the Asia Pacific for staking democratic values. And then, in contrast, you really do have this stark totalitarian government in the north. And while much of the popular media lately has focused on on the young leader and with some fascination and there has generally been uh, a mythology with global interest around the Kim family and all of its oddness and all its cultish behavior. It's a very serious uh, challenger on the international stage Uh, in terms of uh, the conventional force threat, in terms of missiles and nukes, chemical and biological, in terms of human rights concerns, in terms of its challenges as a developmental state where 80% of its population is living in abject poverty, where basic agriculture, energy, uh, foodstuff, and healthcare needs uh, are, are not being met, where the United Nations is making broad appeals uh, because of challenges, uh, natural disasters, and, and challenges on the health front, where things like tuberculosis and multi-strain resistant tuberculosis are an increasing reality, which has a, a transnational Aspect, which presents a challenge in the event of political instability uh, by way of of tumult and potential for outflows of refugees and the pandemics that follow them, and questions about control of the nuclear stockpile, issues of nuclear safety, and uh, importantly, things like cybercrime today, where the North Koreans derive over a billion dollars annually in revenues from cyber theft, and where to employ your most recent podcast where you have have 5G miracles in South Korea and you have a nation that as of December 1st had three carriers within 6 months will have nationwide 5G coverage that is sophisticated and wired beyond any other place on earth and it was the first nation in the Asia Pacific to enter onto the 5G scene and then you have the cyber criminals in in North Korea mounting their attacks uh, from both Within North Korea as well as uh, from within China. So it's a tremendous challenge in many, many areas uh, security, political, uh, economic, and otherwise. And that is why it's received so much focus and why the summitry too that has gone on in recent, in recent months has derived a great deal of international attention. Why the sanctions regime is in place to curtail the missile and nuclear developments.
1: Let me ask you sort of a summary question. Given all of your years of experience, as you look down the road, would you describe yourself as an optimist or a pessimist? First, reach some kind of stabilizing agreement on weapons, and second, actually beginning to see the North Korean regime evolve towards a more uh, prosperous and more humane system?
0: Uh, I see myself as very much a a cautious optimist. I think there's tremendous potential, part of which is in the character of the Korean people and in what we've seen by way of their adaptability, their flexibility and the rise of South Korea. As much as the international media says, what's the model for North Korea? Is it it China? Is it it Vietnam or or elsewhere? Uh, Really, the the best models to the south of the demilitarized zone. and They will look there for for South Korean investment uh, and and opportunity as uh, the Moon JN administration continues its, its uh, path toward inter-Korean reconciliation. We've had important progress in the last year, including the opening of communications hotlines and the destruction of some of the guard posts along the demilitarized zone. Just in December, you had North and South Korean troops walking together, smoking, conversing as they inspected those destroyed North Korean outposts. You've had a moratorium in place uh, by North Korea. I think ultimately North Koreans, uh, because they consider themselves themselves strategically isolated, and because they are economically disadvantaged, will come to the table on this. I think that uh, the challenge for the international community is convincing Kim Jong-un that security is not derived from having the weaponry in place, but security is derived from giving up that weaponry and uh, realizing the economic opportunities that have been put forward by the South Korean United States administrations as well as uh, by the international community and its encouragement for North Korea to embrace a more peaceful path. Uh, In terms of the question though about its ability to become softer and gentler there will be questions. If it modifies itself it is doing that for regime survivability purposes. It's a conservative little c conservative impulse to maintain itself to maintain the Kim family legacy. So I would argue against Kim Jong-un as a a great economic reformer or or a visionary that way. I think he's tacking, he's younger uh, through the guise of a a 35-year-old man. He's trying to adapt the nation to a reality that's more economically vibrant. He no doubt realizes he has an economic basket case outside of Pyongyang and needs international support in the lessening of sanctions. Part of what happens in a Confucian system, and we should think of this less as a communist regime and much more as a a Confucian dynastic regime, is that he is accountable to the people. There's an accountability factor, and he has to provide for the generals uh, who have been on the take in this kleptocracy, for the business leaders who are, are now emerging and the supposed rising middle class and for young North Koreans and young North Koreans are more concerned about mobile phones and mobility and they're hearing a message uh, about life in South Korea about a better world so the question then becomes how long can they maintain that facade when will there be cracks in the veneer and do information flows finally make a difference where when the economy improves you have rising expectations and newt, as a historian you well know it's when the economies are rising that revolutions happen? And will there ultimately be political change? And that's, that's not factored in very well in a lot of analyses today because of the concern, be it warranted with the security challenges, but we need to see this in a much broader light because what we want eventually is some sort of peaceful integration, and the Korean people want an integration and a unification, but younger South Koreans are concerned about economic slowdown. They're concerned about job opportunities, and there has been a shift in the political scene that reflects that. So gradual integration seems to be what we're hearing in terms of the bent of both South and North Korea that plays out over time that allows for economic inputs to lessen the burden because it will be a very expensive and complex process. And beyond that, if there's sudden upheaval in the in the North, uh, which is within the realm of possibility, if there are pockets of resistance after these purges, if there are rises in expectations and eventually over time in social movements, then it's anyone's guess. And that, too, will have tremendous demands on the United States and on the international community. So this is a complex process. So the Korean War years uh, have had a legacy. And while it has been relatively stable and while South Korea has emerged as a vibrant vibrant political and economic model, there will be challenges ahead as it figures out how to integrate North Korea. But ultimately, I'm optimistic because a united Korea will be a powerful entity that will have uh, 60 plus million people. And once they have weathered, the changes that uh, are required and the economic inputs that will be necessary will be an important player, perhaps along the line of a France or Germany in the Asia-Pacific. And it will be a different world. And it's good to maintain that U.S.-Korea relationship in a very positive light, because it will be ultimately in America's interest, whether it's sharing in technology and 5G, whether it is the democratic values that are shared, and economic prosperity and and stability, because only around the Korean Peninsula do the first, second, third, and 10th largest economies in our world meet.
1: Like you, I think I am moderately optimistic. Hey, I think unification is probably a very long way off, but I think gradual reduction of the tyranny, gradual opening up of the North, and a a sense of prosperity being actually possible is very realistic in the next decade. And I suspect that Kim Jong-un is faced with extraordinarily complicated balancing act between an old order which has sacrificed for its entire lifetime to be an isolated hermit dictatorship with no hope of breaking out and the realistic, I think, sense that the world is passing them by and that the gap is now so enormous that they've got to find some way to give the people hope and to find a model that doesn't give up the dictatorship, but that does make it possible for it to start evolving into the modern world. So certainly I think the folks like my father who fought there in the 50s, would be amazed and delighted to visit Seoul, Korea today and realize how much had grown up behind our shield and how much the people that they had helped and worked and fought beside had created a better future in Korea. And I think that uh, we might get to the next stage in uh, the next generation. So I want to thank you for sharing with us your expertise and your knowledge. And I think it's very helpful for people who are trying to get a better context to understand everything that's going on between the United States and North Korea.
0: Thank you, Newt. And and thanks for the sacrifice of your father and and so many others. And and you're right, it's been an impressive and uh, amazing development on the Korean Peninsula. And it's one where we do have a real stake and uh, we have a stake going forward. So let's hope for, for, again, peace, prosperity, a reduction of tensions, and eventually liberation for the people of the Northern half of the peninsula because they deserve nothing less in this modern era uh, than than the peace and prosperity that their brothers and sisters to the South well enjoy.
1: Thank you to my guest, Dr. Stephen Norper. You can see the books, articles, and documents that we relied on in researching this episode on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newts World is produced by Westwood One. The executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our editor is Robert Borosky. Our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Salvia. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 and Westwood One's Tim Sabian and Robert Mathers. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what Newt's World is all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, I'll be presenting another episode of The Immortals. You'll remember we've already talked about George Washington and Julius Caesar. This time, I'm going to tell the story of Benjamin Franklin, a man who personified the American dream. Someone who, at a very young age, went from Boston to Philadelphia, apprenticed under his uncle to be a printer, turned out in the end to be a great businessman, a scientist, one of the leading scientists in the world, a politician, a diplomat, Uh, participated in writing the Constitution, participated in writing the Declaration of Independence, represented the United States in France, a man of great passion, intelligence, energy, drive, and toughness. I think you'll find Ben Franklin very interesting. I'm Newt Gingrich, this is Newt's World. I don't know what that means.
0: It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! (laughs) Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex.